and thirst for righteousness, he automatically means those idealistic people who think that there can be a world, who wish that there can be a world of righteousness. It is as the prayer of Jesus himself, the Lord's Prayer later, where he says those two fundamental things. May thy kingdom come, may thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That means we wish for a world which is the kingdom of God. May thy kingdom come on earth. It is kind of a terrible thing to ask because in a place like the kingdom of God there will be no place for unrighteousness. And given the fact that so many of us are full of unrighteousness in one way or another, you can realize that this is a kind of perfectionist, extreme, we could call it easily a fanatic thing. Uh, that is why he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled, you can understand either that they will be filled with righteousness, or they simply that they will be filled by the Spirit of God, that they will be filled with perfection. So here, Jesus defines it is good to aspire for a perfect Dharma, because that perfect Dharma is indeed a divine gift. And he continues, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. At some other later time in his discourses, he makes it so plainly clear, here it is expressed in this aphoristic way, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. That means, he says it someplace very clearly, the same unit with which you measure unto others shall be used for measuring unto you. That means, he says, if you are a pretentious human being, then the angels of God will be pretentious with you at your last judgment. If you are a tolerant human being, the angels of God will also show tolerance to you in the day of your judgment. That is why in a repeated line, Jesus always says, do not judge unto others. If you judge too much on the others, God will judge on you, because this is how your mind is, this is how your resonance is. You place automatically yourself on the frequency of a very critical spirit. And the person who is plagued by a very critical spirit and all the time criticizes, then God will say, well, you criticize, let me now criticize you and show you how many things you have to be criticized, which is a tragic thing because nobody is perfect. Therefore, Jesus all the time says, be careful because the unit with whom you measure shall be used for you. If you have been lenient, leniency shall be shown to you. I remember in the Fathers of the Desert, there is this extreme story about an old man who was quite lazy uh, in terms of spiritual practice. And the other monks didn't really pay much uh, respect to him because he was not praying a lot or doing a lot of effort. He was considered one to be one of the lazy men of the monastery. And then when he dies, he is very blissed out. And the others cannot explain, like this guy has been lazy and therefore he is expecting a lot of problems in the hour of his death. And why is he then so happy? And they ask him, what's your story? How do you dare to be happy in front of your death when actually we all know that you haven't been a model of industriousness uh, in terms of spiritual practice? And this guy says, you are right, but 
He said, I had only one great discipline in my life ever since I started my practice and so on. I imposed unto myself never to judge any of my brethren, any of the human beings. I have never judged anybody or condemned anybody in my mind. And therefore, according to the saying of Jesus, if I manage to live a life where I didn't condemn anybody, I shall not be condemned as well. And the others were so amazed, so enlightened by this amazing spiritual practice, that actually this is also a spiritual practice. Blessed are those who are forgiving, for they shall be given forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be given mercy. This is an incredible fact, because... You remember that the Tibetans say that ultimately the nature of the universe is mental. This universe is made of mind. And therefore, the issue is that ultimately if you dig in our subconscious mind, if you go all the planes of the universe till the bottom, exception made of the Supreme Self, which is of the nature of Atman, which is of the nature of Purusha, and therefore it is transcendent, it is non-manifested, it is not an energy of this world, exception made of that, the ultimate energy of this universe is the mind. It stops here. Beyond here, there starts that energy which has no polarity, no characteristic. It is the unified energy of Sahasrara. It is the energy which corresponds to the transcendent. And therefore, we can say that the mind is the ultimate substratum of this reality. The deepest layers of our subconscious mind are the deepest layers of reality. Therefore, if our own subconscious mind condemns <coughs> us, we are condemned. The thing is that we, with our own beliefs, we condemn us. In the laws of mind, in your yoga courses, it says the subconscious mind is the one who condemns or absolves us. That means if you die feeling guilty and without forgiving yourself, it is actually that God condemns you because your resonance asks for it. It is you who cannot forgive yourself. It is your mind which set this pattern and from a microcosmic level will be projected onto a macrocosmic level. It's a resonance. If I am unforgiving to myself and I die thinking I am a sinner who has committed horrendous mistakes, then how shall God forgive me when God is the universal consciousness, the oceanic reflection of my little drop of individual consciousness. That is why this conclusion is paradoxical, because it is our mind which is the holographic reflection, and therefore we, in our mind, already know what our fate is and what it is. And that is why Jesus says, but the one who lives by the sword shall perish by the sword. That means we are all having the resonance. Therefore Jesus says, blessed be the merciful for they shall be shown mercy. One who is merciful is in resonance with mercy. His mind, his subconscious is impregnated by the idea of mercifulness. Therefore, it is impossible that a merciful one who is relying on mercy and gives mercy because it is plus and minus, it is the yin and the yang of the same thing, it is impossible that such a person should not find mercy. You cannot imagine one who is attuned fully on cosmic mercifulness and yet God in the hour of judgment will be 
terrible and sadistic and say it's true, you are merciful, but I am going to condemn you anyhow. The condemnation, so to speak, is an act of resonance. It is not the act of God. It is an act in which you yourself know what you have done and what is right, painful or not painful, what is right is right. And therefore, Jesus here is amazing. He, again, he will take that many times because that is one of the essences. Remember the way you live your life. If you live your life condemning and criticizing, you are asking for the condemnation and criticism of God. Therefore, you cannot live your life like that. You should not. Ah, you will say, but Jesus himself condemned and did like here. Yes, but Jesus was a man with a mission. He was a God with a mission. He had the mission to show. It may be that one of you will become so spiritually developed that you will be entrusted with a mission from God to change the world, to give something to mankind, to show the black from the white and the light from the shadow and things like this. And then maybe you will have the bitter task of also criticizing and saying this is right, this is wrong, but that's in the name of a mission because you have to say it because you are asked to shed light on things. But else in what concerns I as an individual, I don't have any reason to do that. Blessed be the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. It's simply the yin and the yang of the same thing. It is your resonance with the subconscious mind and therefore with the consciousness of God ultimately. That is fundamental. And further, he continues, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This is indeed a beautiful one. Pure in heart means, of course, pure at the deeper levels. Pure in heart, it means not the purity of the physical heart, but it means the purity of the heart, both as Anahata Chakra, that means that I am completely attuned to the love of God, but at the same time, pure in heart can be interpreted pure at the core, pure at the most essential part of my being. If I have purified my mind, if I have purified my soul, if I have purified my jivatman, those of you who are in the third month already know what this jivatman story is, what it means, that automatically I am reflecting and remember this image, Jivatman is the way we reflect Atman. Jivatman, if it is pure and perfect, it fully reflects the divine life in our daily existence. And therefore Jesus says, blessed are those pure in the heart, because they shall see God. See, it's like a reflection. He uses another word. He says, you shall see God because it's like it shines through. To be pure in the heart automatically means that you are going to see how are you going to see God. Because God is not a material entity. God is not a spirit that you can see in the astral world or something like this. To see God obviously means to reflect the existence of God in daily life. At some other point Jesus himself says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
That's exactly what we're talking about. This be perfect, it means that you illustrate through your life the perfection of God. Therefore, when he says, blessed are those who are pure in the heart, it means that your life becomes an image of God. That's how you can see God through yourself. That is why you can see that he insists a lot on the heart and he does not, sometimes what he speaks about the heart is very much like Anahata Chakra, obviously. And then you can say one meaning of this is he says, blessed are those pure in the heart because they are in continuous, perfect harmony with the love of God, with the macrocosmic love and therefore they shall see God because God is love. To be able to see love to be one with love is like you see God. God is the ocean of love. But on the other hand, to be is the, when he uses the word heart, he uses the word heart very much in the way in which Kashmir Shaivists would use it. The heart is more like the essence of the essence, the supreme self, the deepest level, the Jivatman, as I said, if you prefer. So it is the heart, but not really the heart as this. And therefore, when he said, blessed are those pure in the heart, he automatically means a certain purity of the being, of my essential being. Um, when he says a purity in the heart, you have to remember at some time when he, you'll see later, when he criticizes Judas, because Judas is trying to understand some things rationally and intellectually. And Jesus says, don't try to understand with your mind. Open your eyes and heart. Here, he uses the word heart more like a Zen master. The word for enlightenment is there, Satori, the direct vision. It's like, open your eyes and heart and see. Don't let the mind interfere. So pure in the heart would mean like to have the core, the essence, the Atman present, which amounts to the same thing. That is why this purity in the heart has to be interpreted on several levels because Jesus is using here a very rich symbolism. Then the next one is also very beautiful. He says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. This is indeed a heavy one because many people interpret it exactly as the second one which said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And then people who live their daily life, uh, they say, oh Mary, you are mourning for your lost husband. Don't worry, you will be comforted. Jesus doesn't speak about that. He seems in the rest of his life, when you look, he seems to be quite unconcerned with people's little losses and things. He is not at all uh, a kind of encouraging, uh, being mournful for all kind of secondary things. So he therefore means mourning, as I told you last time, mourning for God, mourning for the absence of the beloved, as all the great mystics have done. Therefore, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, he doesn't mean the envoy of the United Nations who goes to the Iraq to sign a treatise of peace. Later on, Jesus says it very clearly. He says, don't think that I came to bring peace on earth, because I didn't, I, but I came to bring a sword. And he says, because of my sake, mother will turn against daughter, brother will sell brother, and there will be enemy, and people's enemies will be his own family, and blah, blah, will reach to that at some point. That means, Jesus obviously says, what I came to bring 
is not the peace of the world. He says in some other point, my peace is not the peace of people. That means I am talking the peace of heart, the peace of Patanjali. Yoga is the appeasing of the movements of the mind, the stopping of that peace. Shanti, Shanti, Shantihi. That is peace. Peace is Santosha and then the perfect calmness of the mind. That is why who are the peacemakers? Those who bring this peace to others. He has got nothing else to do with that peace. That is a hilarious socializing, socialite mind type of interpretation that Jesus uh, would be uh, the best uh, peace envoy on this planet. No, actually in the name of Jesus, sometimes people who are endowed with great saintliness, they have been pretty combative. For example, Saint George killed the dragon, says the story. Saint George did not try to make peace with the dragon. He was a peacemaker, but he did not try to make peace with the dragon, because the, with the dragons you don't make peace. There isn't a possibility to make peace with the devil, for example. And therefore, the option is very clear. Sometimes peace is absurd. Remember that today many of the conspirators of this world, many of the key manipulators, many of this world elite, uh, terrible people who preach all the diabolic things and sink this world in the darkness of it, they come forward and as soon as they create their shit, then they say, well, now there should be peace. Please, no more war, no more terrorism. Now, it's, now uh, just if you want, we can do bargaining. Because we are very good at bargaining and you are not going to get anything out of the bargaining. If you take arms and fight us, you might win and then we have a problem. Therefore, now we want the status quo maintained like this. Therefore, today, you are going to see with surprise that the great politicians, the United Nations, the world conspiracy, suddenly they all seem to advocate peace. There is a little bit here and there, well, uh, we are going to take over Afghanistan, we are going to take over Iraq, but those are small things. Besides that, please, 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 stay quiet. The sheep, sleep, 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 sleep. We want peace, 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 peace. Now let nobody move anything. Pe I mean, only we are allowed to do a bit of work here and there, where there is some still disobedient people, but for the rest, please, sleep, 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 peace, 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 peace. That means uh, Jesus is not at all talking about this peace. The peace of manipulators is not a peace because it's a peace by which they say, don't you dare stand up against our system and start preaching the message of Jesus or of Buddha. We want it to be like this. That kind of thing, the manipulators don't want. Therefore, remember that Jesus is not favoring such a peace. If you would say to Jesus, say, Jesus, look, uh, we are, I'm living in Denmark, and it's peace in Denmark. Jesus will say, well, it is a peace in which people are living in peace, but in a demonic way. Therefore, we don't want that. I'm coming there right away, and I'm going to turn your country upside down. I don't like what's happening in your country. Therefore, I'm not coming to bring peace. I'm coming to bring a total change. I'm coming to bring revolution. What is happening, this peace which you have, it means that now you made peace with all demonic things and you want to live like this. Well, that's not an option. That's not an acceptable option. Therefore, peace is not necessarily good 
from the standpoint of Jesus. Because there can be a peace in which the status quo is demonic and then Jesus would not accept that that peace should be lasting. In the, for the sake of an abstract peace, actually, uh, you know, we should let it be materialistic and atheistic and demonic and dark and whatever, just because it should be peace. No. In such a situation, Jesus would come and roar like a lion and turn the moneylender's desk down and, and make a scene and say, this is abominable. It's not possible. He's not coming with peace in that the peace which he means obviously is the peace of the heart because he says without the peace in your heart which means the peace in your mind without the peace of Patanjali and without that great ideal Om Shanti Shanti Shantihi the real peace the peace of Atman that is what it is so who is a peacemaker? a peacemaker is a guru a peacemaker is a yoga teacher. Those are the peacemakers. They are the people who teach people how to calm down their mind and soul and to live in a state of equanimity and inner peace. Therefore, the peacemaker is the spiritual teacher in this case. It has nothing to do with the socialite type of peacemaker who is going around to make peace. Remember that because especially in the world where we live today, we are witnessing a dramatic reversal of values. Good is shown as bad and bad is shown as good. Sometimes you can have, uh, I don't know what uh, Muslim, Shia, cleric, who just wants to live by the Koran and be a religious, righteous man and he is presented as a, a middle-aged fanatic. And then you have... Uh, conspirator and the demonic spirit a la George W. Bush who is presented as being the ideal citizen, the model citizen. It's a world upside down. The demon is presented as being good and the spiritual man is presented as being a fanatic and as undesirable type of person. That's a world which is upside down. The, uh, I think it was a Polish writer called uh, Jerzy Lech who said uh, he had wrote a book of aphorisms, and one of them, I think, was brilliant. He said, in hell, the positive character is the devil. Because in hell, the devil is the hero, right? The devil is the boss. So you cannot say that the devil is bad when you are in hell. So in hell, the positive character is the devil. If we live in a world which is devilish, of course all kinds of devilish characters get promoted as nice citizens. But... And all kind of people who just want to staunchly do their spirituality are presented as marginal weirdos, as uh, extremists, as people who are outsiders or freaks or whatever. Remember that because Jesus, Jesus is going to come back big time on that. Even in his time, 2000 years ago, this was a very hot issue and it was happening. Therefore, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, he says, a supreme thing, he says, for they will be called sons of God. Amazing! He himself is the first one who called himself the son of God. And he is supposed to be the son of God uh, in the meaning of avatara. But he says they will be called also sons of God. He kind of says, the one who is a peacemaker is the one who does the highest job on this mankind. Interesting, that's exactly what Krishna says. Krishna says in the end of Bhagavad Gita, among the many types of spiritual seekers, those who preach this truth without age and pass it on to others, those are the most dear to me. 
that simply says the ultimate sacrifice that one can do is that after finding the truth should pass it on to the others. Whatever the effort, whatever the fact of being misunderstood or mocked or whatever, and sometimes, yes, it gets to plain martyrdom or whatever, that is the supreme endeavor to pass on this science of oneness, this knowledge of the ultimate. Therefore, here, Jesus indirectly says the same. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, that means the ones who bring the peace in your hearts and minds, the ones who teach you that, for they will be called sons of God, which is supreme. And then he goes on with the eight of them, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven, not will be. By this Jesus lays the foundation of a great streak which started with Jesus. Actually, it started with some of the prophets from the Old Testament, some of the old Jewish prophets who got the same. Jesus, with this blessing, he lays the foundation of martyrdom, of the institution of martyrdom. Sometimes, if you are too hot and too crazy in preaching righteousness, you might irritate the demons of this world who will turn against you and chop you into pieces. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. He admits, because of righteousness, in a world like ours, which is Kali Yuga, and where righteousness is standing on one leg, in a world like ours, which is dark and predominantly demonic, going for righteousness is sometimes quite dangerous, because the demons will not just sit like this and wait for you to do your dance. They will aggressively act against you. And therefore, it is a very well-known thing, and you will see that Jesus defines them that very clearly, that those who act spiritually, they will encounter a lot of obstacles, because the dark forces work. And he says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That means going for that is like making yourself an angel of God. It's like you have the courage that in spite of being persecuted, you should hold high and loud the voice of righteousness, whatever is good. Exactly as John the Baptist was arrested in the name of righteousness and then was beheaded, exactly as Jesus who came to bear witness to the ultimate truth and he was crucified for it, exactly as so many other saints and prophets after, and also a few old prophets before, Jesus is laying the foundation of that, which gave a lot of trust to a lot of people. Christians would not have accepted to become martyrs without this encouragement from Jesus, which says, blessed are those persecuted for righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Fact is, that it is known in history that those men and women who had the incredible stamina to push themselves over the threshold of martyrdom when they died, and many have died, there are many witnesses about that, most of them died in bliss. In the moment when they were burned or crucified or whatever, they did not suffer the way Jesus did, for example. They started burning them and suddenly a halo of bliss appeared on their face it's like they were oblivious, it's like the angels had already carried them to Hirania Loka and they were not here anymore. And basically they died for the others in agony, but actually they seemed to be blissed out. 
Jesus says, when you are persecuted, yours is the kingdom of God, not will be after you die, is. And therefore, he gives with this something amazing, which actually some people got so fanatic that they were searching for martyrdom actively. They almost pushed it in the hope that they would be martyrs. And if not, they said, oh my God, you know, it's kind of I failed to be a martyr, you know. It's kind of I didn't, I was not worthy in front of God so that he should make me a martyr. And it's kind of, they were almost searching for it, which is a ridiculous thing, of course. It is a misunderstanding, but it shows the fact that some people knew, realized, it was known from direct experience that people who died in martyrdom, they actually reached bliss through it right then. That is the eighth blessing, the one who is persecuted in the name of God. You can realize that that is the ultimate thing, that if you have the moral strength to stand up for God, God will not let you down. That is obvious, because if you, as a small ant, you are daring to take defense of God, then with the same measure, God will measure to you. You, as a small ant, try to define, try to defend the cosmic consciousness, the cosmic consciousness can defend you forever and ever, ultimately. And the ninth of them, blessed are you, he speaks directly, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here he becomes so direct, he simply says, actually, I am the one, I am God. I mean, it's because of me. It's kind of, let's forget about general things. But when people persecute you and lie, and he knows all these things will happen. He says, persecute you and falsely slay all kinds of evil and insult you and so on. And you can see it is happening because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's not the first time it happens. And at some point in his expose, in his presentation, in his words, Jesus actually explains very clearly, as you will see, why that actually happens. Because there is a reason for which it happens. And Jesus simply says, Blessed you are if you are persecuted in my name, because you are not the first and you are not the last. And this is, he says, Great is your reward in heaven. That can mean only one thing, because Jesus is not going for petty little things. When he says, great is your reward in heaven, he means the full realization of the kingdom of heaven. And he continues with a different kind of teachings. He finished with the nine blessings, and he continues. You are the salt of the earth, which is a very important thing, which simply means... Uh, you sanctify the place, and when he talks to people, he also addresses you. He doesn't say everybody is the salt of the earth. He said you are the salt of the earth because you are spiritually concerned. You are spiritually interested. And he confirms it in two places, one later and one right here in the next sentence. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? That means if you are a human being and you don't strive for your spirituality, then what are you? You are a salt that has lost its saltiness. The power of the salt is that it should be strong. And this strength is the spirit, is the aspiration. You are the salt of the earth through that. Because a man who is doing spiritual quest, 
He helps many others around him. For one man, a whole city would be saved from disaster, as you saw in the example with Sodom and Gomorrah. And therefore, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the one which save the earth, which nourish the earth. Indeed, the few spiritual persons who exist on this earth, they justify the existence of the earth. Because you can say, wait a second, the great Vedic seers, they said that this earth is a ground for evolution. We are here because we are supposed to evolve. But look, today nobody seems to evolve. People ignore the divine, people ignore the spiritual, people live doing all kinds of material absurd things and they die in the same ignorance. That means it's like the teacher is absent. It's like this is a classroom, this earth is a classroom where the majority of the students are slack. They, don't, they, sh they lie down on the job. They don't actually study. The only evolution which they get is through the kicks in the bottom from Mother Kali. That sometimes there comes an earthquake, a war, a revolution, a plague or something. And then willy-nilly they all go through some extreme event and change. But everybody in this class, they seem to be uh, under the limit. They are completely lazy students. They don't learn anything. Therefore, shouldn't the class be dismissed? Completely. I mean, why should God spend the divine energy to entertain life on this planet when life on this planet, at least the human life, seems to yield very little result compared to what it could be that this could be classes of Nobel Prize winners in spirituality, so to speak, of eminent spiritual beings. They are classes of repetent, of, they are classes of people who are not passing even the minimal uh, level of their examination. And therefore you would say, well, God, who is pretty uh, efficient in his ways, might choose to do better. But then it's exactly like the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, in case you don't remember, there is this thing that the angel of God talks to Abraham and says, I'm going to Sodom and Gomorrah because the cry of the abomination has reached all the way to heaven. And he says, what will happen? And the angel of God basically is very stern and says, if that thing is true, you are going to see mayhem. And then Abraham, because he simply wants to try his strength or because he has a streak of mercy and compassion, he goes against the angel of God and tries to bargain. And he says, but what if there are a few, 50 righteous people in that town? And then the angel of God says, if there are 50 righteous people in that town, I will spare the town for their sake. And the bargaining goes down to five. Basically, in the end, the angel of God is brought to the incredible statement, which says, if I will find five righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I will not destroy the whole abomination in those towns just for the sake of those five. Five people can carry a whole city on their shoulders if those five people are righteous. You are the salt of the earth. The people who are spiritual, they keep this planet running. Because if you would take those away, you would get just a 99% of people who are lazy and sleep on the job. And for those, the planet would not be saved. Remember that in repeated places, Jesus and also in the Apocalypse of John, the status of the spiritual beings is mentioned as very special. They say the persons who are spiritual, who seek for spirituality, they are not Tom, Dick and Harry. You have to get used with that. Those persons, they belong to another status. 
they mean something special for this planet and therefore they are valuable when you say you are the salt of the earth it's like this is valuable but unfortunately says that's where the problem is but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again that means you shall not lose that which is your gift it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by man therefore this is exactly what he says a human being who is not the salt of the earth can be thrown out and trampled by men. Then you become Tom, Dick and Harry. Then you become what the ancient Jews called Tohu Vabohu, the outer darkness, chaos, the multitude, the numbers, cannon fodder. Because there is a huge difference between the one who has a spiritual status and the others. That is not said to encourage your ego, because just the other time I said you should remain humble and see your own shortcomings and be aware of the great gift which comes to you. But nevertheless, when you are spiritual, you are belonging to a different class. You are not Tom, Dick and Harry anymore. You are promoted to the category salt of the earth. You become the salt of the earth. And at some point, Jesus insists tremendously, and he says to those of you who are like this, Every hair on your head is numbered, is accounted for. That means nothing is happening because then the angels are focused on you. When you start practicing spirituality in a dark environment like Kali Yuga, suddenly the multitude of angels will notice there is a rare bird. There is one who in this age of darkness shines like a pearl in the mud. In this age where everybody is forgetful of God <coughs> and wicked and materialistic, there is one who tries to do it, then a lot of attention will be focused on that one and a lot of support, a lot of blessing. And that is why Jesus insists on this. It is good for you to have the confidence of what you are, not to be arrogant and vanitous and proud, while still being humble, but yet knowing exactly that you have a place in the great picture and that the eye of God is focused on you now that you have dared to raise your head and look to the sky. When you look to God, God is looking to you as well. Therefore, the fact that you are not going looking into matter, but the fact that you are going looking into the heaven is a complete change of perspective for your lives. That is why he says, you are the salt of the earth. If you lose that, you will be trampled in the feet by man. That's like a description of the chaotic existence, of the swarming, unconscious existence of the multitude who are numbers, again, from that standpoint. Therefore, Jesus says it is very important to have these spiritual statues. There are people, even after they start doing spirituality, they keep on thinking, and that's a false humbleness, while funny enough, in their daily life, those people can be pretty vanitous, pretty arrogant and their ego can be pretty upsetting. At the same time, if you say, wow, you do spirituality and so on, uh, they say, yeah, but it doesn't matter. You know, we are all the same. They try to practice this political correctness, democracy. We are all the same stuff. You are not. The spiritual practitioner is a, spirit, is a special person taken into the spotlight by the angels and by the divine consciousness because he's one of the rare knights of light who tries hard in this life to do something. That is why there is a special status when you try to do that. Remember, Jesus will come on it very clearly. 
You are the light of the world. He says about himself at some point, while I am in this world, I am the light of the world. And he says now to people, you are the light of the world. That means, through whom will spirituality be promoted to the next generation, if not through you? If not you, then who? If not now, then when? You don't realize it yet, because you are still crawling a bit in the low chakras. But you are the ones. You are the ones that God wants to take to the next generation and to promote the spiritual. There are no others. Who will do it? Rothschild, who will do the propagation of spirituality? You are the ones. That's why Jesus calls your attention. You are unaware. You don't realize where you are and what you are doing. You are the light of the world, you spiritual people. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That means when you are spiritual, that's it. And he gives the ultimate. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Amazing statement. First of all says, it's impossible that you would be spiritual and it will yield no result whatsoever. A light is not put under a bowl. It shines. Therefore, when you see people who say, I am very spiritual but nothing is happening, it's obvious that it's fake. At some point Jesus says, the tree is known by its fruits. Where are the fruits? This is the new age idiots of today who claim absurdly or either they imagine so or they are crooks and they want to do so who, who all the time say I am a self-enlightened master and people say well if you are a self-enlightened being let's see what comes from you how many people did you inspire your light to how many people did it shed light because when you light a light it shines in the dark where is your light and they say, well, you know, I don't want to show myself to the world. I have a special destiny. I have a special uh, mission from God. Jesus contradicts. And he says, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. A light shines by its own nature. That is why Ramakrishna, for example, when he was asked, he said it's like a flower. When a flower blossoms, the bees come automatically to it because of the fragrance of the, of the flower. The fragrance of the flower tells them that there is something beautiful there. That is why every truly spiritual human being will automatically shine light, will do something of light for the others. Even if they don't teach, even if they don't teach, they will be exceptional people. They will be people who will give something bright. They may choose to compose poems, or they may choose to be silent, or they may choose to do a lot of things, but still there will be a light shining. How my, what did Ramana Maharishi teach? He was just a boy who was sitting and meditating and then when he got older he was reading the newspaper and he was talking to the peacocks and to the cows and he was behaving pretty ordinarily. This man called Ramana Maharishi, besides the fact that he answered questions not so often, he just had three, four, five hours every day where he was sitting in meditation and everybody could attend, everybody could sit in silence and join in the same place where Ramana meditated. He didn't really have much to offer. He didn't write books. He didn't teach lectures. And yet his light was shining strong. You look at his photo and you almost see the light shining through Ramana Maharshi. That is why Jesus is very clear this is an ultimate thing again. 
and he says your light will shine. It's impossible, it's not without an effect that somebody says, oh, I have a lot of light, but you can't see it. It's absurd because the light can be seen when it is there. It has effects on other people's lives and it has effects on the universe. And he says, let your, shine, your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Actually here, Jesus is an excellent motivator. He says, use your life to fish souls. Remember, the other people are cannon fodder. They are souls to be fished. He says to Peter, come and I will make you fishers of men. That means the other people are in the outer chaos. We have to fish them out of there. Exactly as St. Teresa of Avila said in the night I'm descending to hell and with my prayer I'm trying to hook souls out of hell. The other people live in the chaos. You have to fish them out. He says, how? Shine, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. What a jump! Because you do good deeds and because you are spiritual, let people praise God. That's consecration, isn't it? Because actually, let the glory... If I do good deeds, then people would say, Wow, you do good deeds, you are a great person. But Jesus says, people should not praise you for your life, for your good deeds. For your deeds, pass the glory on to God. Say, don't praise me, I'm nothing. But praise God through whom everything is possible. And therefore, with this, Jesus actually gives a methodology, the key of the methodology, that you can change the, li the, the lives and the hearts of other human beings by shining through your good deeds, by really being a light. Well, according as you meditate and you are a light, other people's lives will change through that. And he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In this way, Jesus is saying, I am not just a splinter in the eye. I am not just kind of out of the context. There is a history of spirituality here, which has started with our prophets from the Old Testament, and I am the continuation of that. I am not coming to tell you something else. I am coming to fulfill that thing further on. That's very important in, inv in the environment where he was because sometimes he's actually bringing revolutionary teachings which can be argued upon and people say, look, you are teaching something different. Therefore, he calls the attention. Attention because in the spirit, what I teach is the same fundamental divine law, but it is simply updated and expressed in the way of the heart. He says, I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. In this way, he lays the foundation. He says very clearly, there is nothing wrong with the law which Moses brought first. I am just coming to bring it to the fullest expression. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Great, great attention. We can speak about it like Yama and Niyama or whatever. Jesus here becomes on the stern side. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, which is as bad, 
or maybe worse, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, which means you are going down, simply. That means that is indeed what Jesus is talking a lot against. Often, he is often against that kind of thing. But whoever practices and teaches this command will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That simply means that is the essence of realization. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the rabbis of the day, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That simply means, he says, I came to add on some people today. They are, for example, angry at some of the Christian things. And then they say, I want to destroy all this and to do something else. Jesus is very wise. He says, I didn't come to destroy because if I destroy, may, but maybe something was still good. I came to take all the good parts and preserve them and to bring things to perfection. He makes it very clear and you should think in those terms in your lives. He says, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. That means the Pharisees and the others, the scribes and the rabbis, they were a little bit of spiritual people. There are, I think, some uh, Jewish filmmaker made a film which is called Kadosh or something like this, where they show if somebody would live according to Orthodox Judaism, how many rules they are supposed to fulfill. And I think there are 210 rules, things to be done every day. It's kind of maddening. All your day is ruled by rules, 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 rules. There were people who tried to live like that. Some of the Pharisees and some of the zealots and some of the other classes of people, the scribes and the rabbis, some of them were hypocrites, perhaps, because there are even today many priests and monks who are hypocrites and pretenders, but some of them were honest, some of them were fanatics, some of them were perfectionists, who were correctly trying to live their lives according to that. And Jesus says, those people, perhaps, they have lost their heart and they don't make it to the kingdom of heaven. But at least they make 10 units of spiritual effort every day. Unless you don't do more, don't think that because I'm teaching you my spirituality, you can forget about that. My spirituality is added on, on top of that. That means it's more you have to do to reach the kingdom of heaven, you have to do 20 points of spirituality for that. And what has survived into this Pharisee's culture is only 10, because they just apply some rules mechanically, and because they don't put heart, and they don't put enthusiasm, and they don't put this, and they don't put that, it's not enough. So while they think, well, we live by the law, I, Jesus, came to call the alarm signal and say, hey, teachers of the law of the time, what you do, enough, is not enough. You need to upgrade a little bit because somehow the world has become perverted and you, are and you are doing things in a dry way, mechanic way, robotic way and you need to upgrade it a little bit. You need to, uh, to go a little bit higher in your efforts. And of course, if the teachers of the law would not listen and most of them would not want to listen, they are very angry at Jesus telling them such a thing. Then he takes other people who are just normal cobblers and fishermen and tax collectors and whatever they were. But he tells them, be careful because your effort should be bigger than those. Because else 
you think I'm teaching you this and actually you are not doing anything just because you are with me? That's wrong. That means your spiritual practice still must be intense. You must do all those people do plus the additional bonus which I am giving to you through my things. That is very important because it shows very clearly that Jesus is aware of the fact that he comes to upgrade the spiritual tradition, to take it to the next step, and he is very much aware. He is not just an egoistic, egocentric person who says, oh, I came to bring a better truth to the world. Forget about the old parts. Forget about the old truths. Uh, listen to my truths. No. He said the old truths were wise, but because people's hearts got hardened and they do all those things mechanically, it's not quite enough to reach salvation by the end of your life just with that. Therefore, we need to push it a little bit. We need to step on it a little bit. And therefore, this is a very wise way. Remember that when you change old things, you should not throw the baby with the water in the bathtub. Jesus is very clearly aware that what is good is still good and it shouldn't be thrown away because some of those things are wise and perfectly divine. And here comes a long list of teachings that he is giving about exactly making that comparison. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone to his, he says to his brother, Raka, which is a uh, Naramaic uh, term for contempt, like piss off or whatever, is answerable to the Sanhedrin, to the religious authority. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's a real stern statement here, because he simply moves the pretensions much higher. That means the old ones, you say, you should not murder because you will be judged. But he says it's not only about murder, it's even anger. First of all, that we know from Ayama and Niyama in terms of Ahimsa. Ahimsa is a matter of non-anger. It's a matter of non-violence, non-violence even in your mind. So Jesus is a real psychologist. He's a real yogi. He goes to the root and he says, if I'm allowing you to be angry, you will cultivate anger and one day you will kill somebody anyhow because you will not be able to control your anger. Therefore, let's go to the root of the enemy. The root of the enemy is anger itself and that will bring judgment because that's the resonance. You cultivate anger, you are, will be in touch with anger and at the, judge, at the judgment day, you will ask for God's anger because that's how you see the world. That's the color of your spectacles. Your spectacles are spectacles that ask for anger. And therefore, anyone who says to his brother, Raka is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be danger, in danger of the fire of hell. There is in the lives of the fathers of the desert an incredible story. One of these old men who was very holy and very accomplished spiritually, at some point, uh, he is in a monastery or in a community, and somebody is talking badly about one of the brothers in the monastery, who apparently was doing a lot of shitty things, whatever. While he was in the monastery, maybe he was a glutton, maybe he was a fornicator, maybe he was doing things which were completely unfit to that holy and ascetic environment. And 
everybody knew and this guy was doing it shamelessly further on because all these fathers of the desert they were very gentle very loving people and they would not and uh, they say oh you know that brother what he is doing and so on and then this guy shakes his head like with contempt you know and says ah you know he didn't even even say a word he just exclaimed with disgust like yeah that abominable asshole yeah it's like he's a stain on our community uh, you know it's kind of we are all displeased with him he basically judged him and in that moment he felt instantaneously that all the grace of prayer which he had stopped instantaneously and the story says that that man wondered, he ran, he realized immediately what he had done, and he ran in the desert and he prayed for, I don't know, nine years or something like this, before that grace came back to him. Just because one day he judged one of his brothers saying, yeah, yeah, sure, he's terrible, and so on. Remember, that is such a stern thing, and he says, even the one who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. So stern Jesus is, the path of the heart, so pretentious it is. And in that way, remember, remember, remember again. Okay, Jesus himself said to other people, uh, vipers or hypocrites or whatever, but remember that always he was not a one who was developing anymore. He was fully developed and he was in the position of giving advice to other people he was the divine model, which is an entirely different issue. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. That is an incredible magic thing which Jesus is revealing here, that even your sacrifice will not go the right way. You are a hypocrite. You say, I want to give this, but on the other hand, you actually haven't done the basic thing. You are still angry, and you are still uh, in a state of conflict because of those. He says, first go and make peace, first go and forgive, and then you can truly give. That is why without being forgiven, you cannot really commune. That is why in the Christian communion, there is always the habit that before taking communion, you have to do a confession to have all your things wiped out. Unless you don't confess and forgive yourself and get cleansed, you cannot commune properly. The communion will turn against you. He basically says, this sacrifice which you do in a tense, egoistic, arrogant state of mind, and you say, what the heck, I'm going to do it anyhow, is going to turn against you. It is going to be a poison that will burn you later. You better don't do it then, because you don't realize that when you open towards God, you're, you open towards the cosmic consciousness, which is the, 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 the repository of infinite potentialities. And through the law of resonance, you are asking from this ocean of consciousness exactly for your anger and frustration and all the other things. That is why you should not open in such conditions. Because first, you can do the first things first, the simple things first. That is a very important thing that is to be meditated. That is the essence ultimately of yama and niyama. Settles matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. 
Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be, you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Obviously here he is not talking about the legal system of the day, but he is talking about the forces which produce karma. This is indeed the thing. He says, if not, he will deliver you to the judge. Your mind and the fact that you haven't forgiven yourself and you have not forgiven the other is a chain. And that chain will keep you in the laws of karma. You are the prisoner of your own lack of forgiveness. You are the prisoner of your own lack of mercy. You are the prisoner of your own hate, faith. And then he says, he'll hand you to the officer and you will be put in prison and you'll have to pay till the last penny. That's karma. You have to pay till the last gram, to the last item, to the last fragment of karma. That means once your karma starts, there is no way to stop it anymore. And therefore Jesus says, first do peace quickly. Don't even get to court. He says, settle matters quickly before getting to court. Getting to court is a metaphor of two things. Either dying, because when you die, then it's the judgment for you, and that's the court. So settle the matters before you die. And the court is also when you present yourself in front of God. Here I come boldly and say, God, here I am, give me communion. Jesus says, if in that state you present yourself still dirty and guilty, it's kind of you will attract from that. That means God will be like your mirror and show you what you are. You will get from the universal consciousness exactly the reflection. And that is why he says, set things quickly before that. That means do not consider yourself worthy that while you are having a million conflicts and hate and so, you should at the same time go into divine consciousness and reach samadhi and so on. I can tell you, I can confirm you from experience that if you try to enter in the state of samadhi, in a state of mind where you have a severe conflict of this kind, it will be polluted severely and you can have a very strange experience instead of a pure state of samadhi. That is why here he is true indeed. He says, do not confront yourself with the infinite ocean of consciousness unless you, can be, unless you have done your part. Forgive, settle everything, then you are free to go into the presence of the infinite. That is a very important thing because first, before you start doing divine sacrifices and so on, remember that you should have this background. Never forget that your subconscious mind at its deepest levels, it knows. And ultimately the nature of the universe and of karma is mind. And ultimately if your subconscious mind does not forgive you, God doesn't forgive you either. Because it's the law of resonance. As long as you feel guilty, the universe keeps you guilty. And therefore, we are our own judges. Many people who had this afterlife experience, this clinical death experience, when they witnessed, when they went through that tunnel of light and then they were in the presence of an angel or God or something, they didn't know. They realized that in that moment they were judging themselves with an objectivity and with a sharpness which they never thought they had in themselves. It's like ultimately, if I go deep in me, there is there the perfect consciousness of God which knows exactly. 
the fact that all my life I try to ignore that one and to say, oh, well, well, it doesn't matter, well, uh, forget about it, that doesn't serve in the moment of my resonance, of my death, when my past is chosen, that resonance becomes active, and then I, more than anybody else in this universe, know exactly where my place is and where I belong. And therefore, I can say that at the level of Atman, I am my own judge, and sometimes I can be my own merciless judge. Even so, even if it's my own Atman, my own Atman can condemn me to hell, can condemn me to a lot of things, because my Atman is not attached, it is not blinded by emotions. It says with pain in the heart, and yet you have to go to hell. That's the end of it. And therefore, remember that uh, this is very important. Adultery, here you have the non-tantric teachings of Jesus for sure, but actually he brings them to the level of the spirituality. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. That's of course from uh, the laws of Moses. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful, with lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Basically, Jesus says the problem is the desire. Buddha said the same thing. It's the desire which comes before the actual fact. And therefore, if you have the desire, you are as poisoned in your aura as if you did it. That means you will fret and fret and yearn and yearn and long and long. And basically that desire will kill you. If you don't do it now because you have a strong willpower, you will do it in your next life when it will accumulate a lot. Many people have reported cases of people who one life they have been monks or nuns and they refrained forcefully from sex. And in their next life, their karma made them become prostitutes or fornicators or whatever, simply because they accumulated so much frustration that now they are so full of repressed desires, sexual that is, that they simply went into it absurdly, chaotically and in a degenerate way. And that is why Jesus goes to the root and he says, well, the adultery is not the fact. The adultery is the desire for it in the heart. If you are, and then here he comes, he, and he stops that, and he basically here he talks as a Zen master, and here he talks really, really, this is perhaps one place where you can see the ultimate nature of Jesus' uncompromising type of thing. That's why he is a model. Not many people in this universe have been able to live literally by this kind of tension. That means Jesus is pushing it to a level which is frightening. Of course, he means it metaphorically, but still, even metaphorically, that is still pretty frightening. He does not go deeper in adultery. He says, it has been said not to commit adultery, but at the same time, I'm telling you that that starts from the heart, that that starts from the mind, that it starts internally. And uh, he defines a lot of factors with this. Remember that here Jesus seems to fit very well with what Buddha said. Buddha was the same kind of dry person. He said the cause of human suffering is desire. And as long as you are based in desire, as long as you are possessed by desire, you will be like a butterfly around a lamp. You will burn your wings all the time. Desire kills you. 
Therefore, this is a very, very good teaching because if a man like Buddha said attention, 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 desire is killing you and basically there is a quotation somewhere in the Dhammapada in Buddha he says uh, a man puts his penis in a woman's uh, private part and he thinks that that gives him pleasure. He, said, oh, he says, oh ignorant man, you would have better poked your penis in a jar full of burning coal rather than doing that. Because that desire and pleasure is going to imprison you and you will stay to this world attached to it. This teaching, given the fact that Buddha is so adamant and he adv advocates a cut, such a detachment, that means Buddha is not joking with the detachment. He advocates it all. And one like Jesus follows the same dry path from the Old Testament. And he, not here, at some point he has some more to say. And you will see he actually has a pretty liberal attitude. But he simply says, there has been talk against adultery uh, because of that. And I am telling you that it starts in the heart. That means you should go to the essence. But nevertheless, this shows Jesus to be the adept of a philosophy which says again, become dispassionate, become, you know, kill the root of the desires. And that actually is a bit frightening because many of you can ask, my God, if a man like Buddha and if a divine model like Jesus are both that stern, then how is it going with our Tantra practice? I mean, the Tantra practice that we do is based on desire, after all. And this is exactly what I'm telling you always. We have a problem with karma, to act or not to act. Not to act or karma yoga. We have a problem with material property, not to have and to be poor and to be detached, or to have and at the same time to be detached. Remember this double thing which we always have, the primitive direct solution and the sophisticated solution. Here both Buddha and Jesus, they go for the direct solution. They simply say desire is killing you, cut desire, stop, that's the end of it. It is only the tantrics who dare to come with this sophisticated thing and they said apparently you may fall prey to your desire but it's like a judo fighter who seems to fall on his back defeated and yet he throws his opponent over the shoulder. That means you don't actually fall prey to your desire. A tantric is not supposed to be ruled by his or her desires. We cultivate desire as a weapon because you can't get it up without desire. You can't go into the dynamics of sexuality without desire. So we allow desire to be while desire is like playing with fire. Jesus and Buddha says, switch off the fire, extinguish this fire because it's dangerous. And only the tantrics are the madmen who say, well, we know that but we can play a little bit with it without getting burned and that's an exceptional method. Remember that Tantra is called walking in Tibet. They call the path of Tantra walking the edge of the razor. Walking the edge of the razor is not easy and it is dangerous. In India they call it riding the tiger. Riding a tiger is not an easy job and it is not without danger. That is why Tantra 
has a danger and one of its major dangers is that you will forget that desire should be killed. Even a tantric should be able to kill desire. And if you just use desire but you never learn to switch it off, you are having a major problem. Remember, desire must be defeated, but the tantrics have chosen a paradoxical method, a reverse method, a spectacular method of defeating their desire. The end of tantra is reaching also a state of desirelessness or dispassion as well. Just as Buddha and Jesus clearly say, that is why remember, yes, in tantra we do play with fire. Even against the advice of a Jesus or of a Buddha, which they preach the direct, simplified, ascetic path, some people in the tantric path, because there is this gift from God that we have been given the tantric path on this planet, and there were some major spirits that substantiated it and explained it, we have this gift that we can stay a little bit in the manifestation and play with the Maya. This desire which creates the Maya and which is our worst enemy, which is our prison, we're actually playing with it. Instead of becoming like Buddhist monks, completely dead, we are having the attitude of the hero. That's why in Tantra we are all viras, men and women. We are spiritual heroes. That is why the Tantric say the Tantric, the candidate to Tantra, shall be brave and heroic. Because actually, maybe you didn't realize, but in Tantra we do the forbidden thing. We fiddle with desire and we were supposed to kill it, not to let it flow. And therefore, we let it flow to kill it later. We let it flow to kill it by a judo trick. We let it flow so that we can cancel it by another indirect mechanism. But that should not be forgotten. There are people who do 10 years of Tantra and still their desire is not under control. Don't forget, you are yogis and you should be able to control your desire. Now here it is, now it isn't. If I want to cut off my desire for 6 months, I just cut off my desire from 6 months and all the way as Jesus says, down in the heart. I can be immortal and cold, you know, it's kind of, I can be like a god. I don't even look down on this world and its problems. I am completely, completely detached. That is a way of looking upon it. And remember, always meditate. Does my tantra practice make me master of my desires? Or because I am enjoying so much sexual pleasure, Actually, I am becoming addicted to them and I am becoming more of a slave of my desires. That is fundamental, in case you didn't understand it. Until now, understand it. You are playing with fire and the danger is to forget that and to get swallowed by the fire. The end of 20 years of Tantra is not to be a very desireful person. The end of 20 years of Tantra is to be a desireless person. That is the success in it. Ah, that like Shiva, you can create realities and snap your fingers and say, like you turn on the light, now it's time to turn on my desire, because I have got something to do right now. I have to accomplish a deed. I have to act in this world. That's something else, because tantrics consider that the action in the world is superior to inaction, like to stay away. But that's something else that is a deliberate choice of doing it. 
remember always that because in Tantra that is one of the major dangers to forget why you started to do it, what was the original purpose. Remember, remember, remember that Tantra is a spiritual method, it is not a hanky-panky thing and it is meant to perfect you spiritually, that's the sole purpose of it. It is meant to take you to eternity through the mastering of the desire. And then Jesus raves full power, he goes the full power in it, that's where you see indeed completely non-compromising. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. He is right, isn't he? That means we all know that, but we don't dare to say it because it is so tough, so problematic. He simply says there may be something in you which is wrong. Have the power to cut it off mercilessly because even if you will suffer and even if you will be incomplete, still you will save your ass. You will save your soul, and that's essential. The rest, the fact that you will reach to the kingdom of heaven, bleeding heavily and saying, Oh my God, I actually never got to fulfill my sexual fantasies in this life. You will yourself laugh of yourself and say, The heck with it. I, I did not satisfy my sexual fantasies, and I cut myself really deep, but I have reached the kingdom of heaven, and that's the number one priority. Therefore, Jesus is so very right that was in a certain way the principle which they used even in the so much hated and despised Inquisition. The foundators of the Spanish Inquisition, of the Catholic Inquisition, they had the same thing. Shall you let your brothers and sisters sink into witchcraft and go to hell? Or shall you take responsibility and meet it in the butt and stop them before? Even if you take a terrible responsibility, but in front of God, the fact that you save their soul, not their body, it's true, isn't that a good thing nevertheless? It's kind of taking a terrible responsibility about the destiny of other people. Many people would say, well, but don't all human beings have the duty to be free and to choose? Yes, perhaps that's where it errs. Perhaps that's where it goes really wrong. But besides that, the principle is coming from Jesus. Jesus is the intolerant, fiery, ardent one, full of tapas, who says just that. Your right hand pisses you off because it's your enemy. Cut it off. He doesn't mean literally, I suppose, uh, from what it feels, but it's a metaphoric thing. That means the parts in you which are evil and sinful, you should cut them off without any mercy. There is no mercy for that because if the devil hangs you by one hair, he hangs you all. Therefore, you should not admit that little limitation. It's like a string tying a balloon. The balloon cannot fly because of one string attaching it. Then Jesus says, for God's sake, cut that string mercilessly, even if it's a string made of gold and you care about it, cut it because then your balloon will fly. It's true, it will fly without that string, but who cares? 
it eventually it will fly. Maybe when you will become one of the knights of Shambhala, you can come back on this planet afterwards as a conqueror and finalize what you didn't finish in this life and fulfill all your fantasies or whatever. But first, reach that. The priorities of Jesus are very clear and at some other point he puts it uh, also very clear. Therefore here, Jesus is completely uncompromising. This is exactly where you see that he is archetypal. He is a model. That means not trying to be politically correct, not trying to pamper people, not trying to be a soothsayer, not trying to make people unafraid or anything. He hits with a full strength. He simply says, whatever is wrong, cut it off because it might be the little pebble in the clockwork which stops, which, which kills your machinery, which prevents you from reaching the kingdom of heaven. And you don't want to have that. Therefore, be merciless to your own shortcomings of this kind because any such attachment is keeping you. And because of a little bit of karma left, you won't be able to go in your liberation because that little karma keeps you coming back. And if you come back, maybe you forget and you do something stupid and then you accumulate neg more negative karma and there can be a terrible chain going in that way. That is why Jesus here is completely intolerant. He goes for perfection, no more and no less. And I think... We should stop with one last little one because we talked about adultery and there is one related with sensuality. It's a very short paragraph after which I will stop. Some of them would have deserved a longer comment but because I know that Jesus says the same things later in a more explicit way, I'm now passing about them and then I'll remind you about them when I reach to the most explicit one because sometimes Jesus says two or three times the same thing or it can happen that one of the apostles presents it in a more clear way than the other with better words and with more detail and then it's worth taking it at that point. That is why every time when I remember that there, there comes more about that, I am leaving it for the time being and giving you only elementary comments on it. And he has something to say about divorce, which again is very unmodern and very uh, provocative. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. Pretty, pretty much like today, and pretty much uh, this was the old Jewish law. And he says he's coming with something else, he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, that is interesting that he even accepts that as a human failure, causes her to become an adulteress, and anyone who marries that divorced woman commits adultery. That simply, he means, exception made of that one reason, which is very clear, and I'll comment a word on it in a second, there should be no divorce. People are still upset at the Catholic Church that it does not give people the possibility to divorce. It's right here in the Gospel of Matthew, the paragraph number 31. It's from the mouth of Jesus. It is not the invention of the Catholic Church. Therefore, Jesus considered that the world should be like this. You look at, in India, for example, traditional Indian families, there is no divorce. Do they have problems? Yes, they do. Is there all kinds of issues? Yes, there are. But you know what? It is like Paramahamsa Yogananda says. He says, people here live by different values. 
when he wrote his self-biography in 1940 or whatever it was, and that was a time when people in Europe and America were much more old-fashioned and much more backward, so he could say that today he would be stoned by the young generation to say such a thing, which shows how much more in Kali Yuga we are and how much more down the drain we have gone, because things which were perfectly decent to say in 1940, just 60 years later, have become politically incorrect and unacceptable, and that shows we are flowing down the world with great speed, soon we'll kick the rock bottom, because there is almost, we can't almost go lower than this. And basically, Yogananda, you know, he speaks about the arranged marriage of his sister, that he joined the marriage which was arranged, and then he excuses, and he says, well, according as you know, in India, families arrange marriages, but he says, I must also uh, say, like, I, I would like to say something about this, I must also comment that the percentage of successful happy marriages in India is much bigger than in the Western world or America, where therefore people have the possibility to divorce as a, as a compromise done to their ego, because it's because of the ego that we don't want to confront those difficulties and we run squealing, while life is supposed to be a great exam for us and we have to take what it gives us with santosha, and because of that we say, no, 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 not this test, no, no, not for me, not in this life, and I'm running away from it, and basically I'm shirking my exams. It's like somebody in the university who says, no, no, no um, mathematical analysis for me, but the teacher knows, full, where are you running? You will have to pass the mathematical analysis exam. You don't pass it this year, you'll have to pass it next year, but you can't avoid it. The mathematical analysis examination is part of the curriculum in this school and you have to pass it. In the same way, smart modern people, they think they can circumvene the problems and not be subjected to some of those terrible things. Try to think, in the history of mankind, in Christianity, in Hinduism and in a few other places, in Islam and so on, there have been billions and of men and women born on this planet who were married from one end of their life to the other, and they did not have divorce as an option. Divorce was not an option. Then, what solution will you find to life? That means, if I'm locking this door, and I'm saying this is not an option anymore, then, let me see, how are you going to blossom? How are you going to fulfill your life in those conditions? And the answer is very clear. I'm going to fulfill my life reaching into perfect love, reaching into what is significant, reaching into self-sacrifice, reaching into perfection, reaching into the love of God, reaching into the real thing, not just a little uh, relationships. Is it one more minute? Relationships are supposed today to be like to satisfy me. No, they are not. This is our ego, our hedonistic ego, which claims that this world is here to tickle our senses and therefore to keep us prisoners. That's a very dangerous philosophy. I live because I want life to make me happy. And then you will be a prisoner of Maya. You will be attached to it. Remember that kind of thing. It's very easy to, take, to come out of that. That is why Jesus, who is coming from a different perspective, he says it doesn't matter if your life becomes uh, sensually or sexually or sentimentally unhappy because of a wrong marriage. 
sit down and find the solution to that. And it's like in the Groundhog Day, the solution of the day is actually to reach perfection and unconditional love. And therefore, this is why your relationships can be shitty, thus showing you your real face, mirroring the reality of your own egoism and limitation, and you will, you will keep on being miserable until one day you will start loving like Jesus. And when you will love like Jesus, then you will forgive the whole world, you will love the whole world, and then even if you would be in a relationship with the asshole of the assholes of this world, you will still be loving and forgiving and beautiful. That means an unfortunate relationship is actually a challenge. Can you love your enemies? Now you are sleeping in bed with your enemy. Can you get to love your enemy? That's true love. But many, most people chicken out and they run because they say it's too difficult for me. Jesus says no. Don't avoid that. Little break. Remember that Jesus is coming with this image of the world on Anahata, that everything is sacrificed, you should carry the cross, you should sacrifice yourself for the world. He says, anyone who wants to follow me, he says later, they should take their cross and follow me. Like from the heart, you want to give yourself to the world, your compassion and mercy gives you to the world. That means, what is the big deal if you also have a loving relationship in which you suffer? You carry a cross. Carrying a cross is the line. Jesus doesn't say, well, I'm going to arrange for you a life of fun. According to Jesus, life is not a fiesta. Life is a great sacrifice in which if you learn to sacrifice yourself, you reach to martyrdom, you reach to salvation, you reach to the unconditional love. So Jesus says, you are a woman and you are married with a guy and this guy is a drunk and he beats you up. Can you love him? Love your enemies. Pray for those who do you harm. Can you love your husband if he's a drunk, an asshole, and he beats you? Why do you run from that? Because that's exactly the ultimate issue. You are going towards somebody who gives you 50 orgasms per week and say, this one I can love. Sure, the tax collectors can do the same, he says. Even the tax collectors can love those who are nice to them. That's not a big deal. But can you love that that one who hates you or harms you. That is why men and women who are locked in the same box by marriage, suddenly they had to solve the great riddle of life. Either both of us become wise and we love each other the way Jesus did, or if not, we are not going to make it. Ah, that sometimes here and there, people with good karma, people with exceptionally good karma, they, by karmic thing, were thrown in a box with somebody who also made them happy. And that one in a million, there is a marriage in a million that is fortunate and it lasts the whole life. 
that's just good karma and you cannot bet on it all the time because people's karma is mixed. Therefore, remember that Jesus is looking from a very radical standpoint on life and he says you can live your life in another way, not as a search of entertainment, but as a search of the ultimate love. It's like a challenge. You throw yourself into the ultimate challenge. You are in a marriage, a lot of things will happen. The sexual passion will die. There will be a lot of material uh, problems and issues. Look at the couple has been married for 10 years. They, you cannot really say that they love each other. Sometimes, yes, you can see, I must admit. But it's seldom. It's less than a case in a hundred and so on. People usually get to know each other, to accept each other, to feel an emotional comfort with each other. You protect my me, I'm covering your back. As long as we are together, we are a team, this and that. That's not really love, right? Love in the name of Jesus is a completely radical thing. It's an unconditional thing. And Jesus is therefore pushing it. Like, uh, you see, the Jews were obviously not having this before. Everybody wants to divorce, give her a paper and send her away. Kind of, you know, then there is endless combinations of combinations. As soon as you got a board of one, change it. Take, get to the next one. It doesn't matter. You know, change them, change them, change them as the shirt. As soon as you get bored of one, take the next one. But Jesus comes with a very, very demanding thing. He says, no, you cannot do that. And at the same time, I must admit that Jesus himself is very tolerant on this one. He seems to understand this story about fornication. He calls it, in this translation, marital unfaithfulness. That means, indeed, if the other is already in a sexual relationship with somebody else, it doesn't work anymore. That means, in that way, the box has been broken already. Then you have what we would call an open relationship. And in an open relationship, this rubbing together, this polishing together my ego against your ego until they don't disappear, we can't reach happiness, cannot exist anymore. Because the other one will say, well, you are an asshole and you drank again, I'm going to Walter to have sex with Walter tonight, fuck you, and so on. And then it doesn't work, it's not an evolution anymore. The other one is already out of the game and you are playing ping pong alone. You, you are not tangoing anymore with somebody. And therefore the process doesn't work. That is why Jesus is very clever at this. And he realizes, first of all, that the human nature has a big issue with this. And he understands that people suffer from this in the Roman code of laws. And I, if I remember correctly, in the British code of laws still it exists. That the passional crime is punished with half the punishment for any other crime. That means if you murder somebody, you are liable to go 25 years in prison. But if you murder your rival, your sexual rival, because he poked your wife, you get only 12 years and a half. Because even the code of law admits that people who are jealous and like this, they become brain dead. It's too much for most people. It's such an irrationally intense frustration that you are going to do stupid things and people are forgivable, they are not evil, they are not bad. They simply have been pushed beyond uh, the limit because this sexual thing is stirring up the ultimate challenge. 
And that is why I told you again, in Tantra, you know all what I'm talking about, and that is exactly what I'm talking about. That means Tantra is confronting you with this deep abyssal demon, and in this way, uh, we know that we have to fight in Tantra with something which is really, really tremendous in that way. If even the codes of laws acknowledge that passional crimes are not they are more common. You can't, what can you expect? It's like people can't control themselves and admit that. Then remember that Jesus knows it himself. And he says, in such case, it's too much to ask from people to continue it. They are not tantrics. We are not talking about tantra, where this would be a spiritual practice. We are talking about the regular Jewish couple from the time of Jesus, framed in a very stiff religious environment. And he simply says, forget about this thing with endless divorces and so on. Just stay in this institution. An exception made of this, in which the other has broken the box and is flying somewhere else already, case in which the process is not there, try to stay in this lifetime process, a man and a woman. Yes, men and women, sometimes they can be so nasty onto each other, that after 20 years they almost want to kill each other. They want to hate each other. I have seen elderly men and women at the age of 60 cursing each other, hate sincerely, really, really mean to each other, really, really wicked to each other. It's like the shit hits the fan, you know, we have lived together 40 years and we have accumulated so much misery and I know what an asshole you are and I know what a bitch you are that we really discharge the most bitter words at each other and curse each other and are ready to beat each other and speak like shit and the least which we can do is turn the back onto each other and refuse talking and saying, yeah, may you be cursed, just go the hell, you know, I don't care and blah, blah, and kind of like this. That's happening often, I have seen that quite often. That means, especially when the old age comes and the bitterness comes and there is less energy and less beauty and less things, then automatically people show the real face of what they call love. That is why uh, Jesus' challenge is amazing. Basically, Jesus' challenge is like a challenge that the marriage, the way I conceive of it, is a marriage which will give you perfect love. If you can live marriage in my standards, Jesus says, I am giving you the divine model. I am giving you a divine view on marriage, which will not just be a complacent social institution as it was in the Jewish times. It is going to be an instrument of evolution. Yes, even the marriage, if you lock it in the way in which I, Jesus, have said, it's going to beat the hell out of you, but eventually it's going to make you a loving person. Because either you will become full of bitterness and resentment, and you will reach the age of 60 being full of hate with the other, that you asshole, I have been locked with you all my life, and you are a terrible person, and you have brought me a lot of sorrow and tears, and I'm just bitter and full of reproaches. Or... Through the grace of God, I am reaching God. And I am going to say like Milarepa, although you have been the most terrible asshole in my life, I am loving you a lot and you have brought me salvation. Only through an asshole like you could I find out how to love a terrible person. And therefore, it's kind of amazing 
that you have forced me either to find ultimate love or not to find anything at all. It is, I am exaggerating it in a little bit, because not for everybody this thing turns that bitter, but that is the case of the majority, just the silent acceptance of some bitterness of life. And I have seen in my life couples, especially in the countryside, simple people, who are not spoiled by all this uh, clamoring egoism of modern people. But my rights, what about my rights, what about my rights? Everybody is asking for their rights. But what about my duties? What about the fact that I'm trying to become a divine person? Therefore, the ego will always ask for rights, but will never demand for its duties. And therefore, people who are more humble, more modest, I have seen wise examples of simple people from the countryside. They have been lodged in the same marriage for all the life. And when old age came, actually they had the degree of affective maturity. They had a degree of acceptance and of universal love. I've seen that in India, I've seen that in Romania, I've seen that in other places of the world where people cultivating the heart and people with a heart, funny enough, either, it's true, I've seen examples where people screwed up, but people who tried to be more spiritual, they realize there is only one exit. I'm like a rat in a labyrinth. There is only one way out of this labyrinth, like from the Groundhog Day. Either I reach perfection and love, or if not, I'm stuck here forever. I am in a bitter pool. That is why Jesus, in his own perfectionist way, he comes and challenges here the human being to transform every relationship, yes, even an unfortunate relationship, with a drunk and somebody who beats you up, into a divine love, into a divine relationship. That means, he says, you know, Jesus is the one who doesn't make compromises with human life. He just said, if your right arm disturbs you, cut it off, and so on. And therefore, in this, he obviously implies, if you are going to get married, I'm going to give you the recipe of a marriage which will bring you to God, which will polish you, which will distillate you, which will refine you and reach you to God. Therefore, you should do like this. That is why, in spite of the modern outcry of scandal that the church does not accept divorces and so on, remember that there was an Anahata Chakra wisdom in this, a kind of quest for the Absolute, even through painful ways. Remember that love and the human evolution is not always pleasant. Especially if you had a lot of bad karma, it's not going to be pleasant. You have to pay your karma in one way. And sometimes your love partner, your life partner, is the one who makes you pay karma through the nose. And in a certain way, if you don't know yoga, if you don't work chanchari mudra, if you don't do yoni mudra or whatever, if you don't know how to compensate karma with karma yoga and good actions, if you don't know this and that, the normal average person to whom Jesus speaks here, nevertheless, how will he do it? Yes, he sometimes has to do it the Kali way. He sometimes has to take kicks in the butt. He sometimes has to suffer for it. But the important is that he should survive, make it to the other shore, and get out of there purified. Yes, if you come from a previous life with 35 murders on your back, like Milarepa had, Surely your life partner will be Mr. Wrong or Miss Wrong, who will give you a hell of a time. 
because your partner will be like your guru who will burn your karma the heavy way. And your task is not to run. Your task is to stay and reach enlightenment. That's the basics of it. That is why, remember, that's specific to Jesus, because Jesus, through the prism of the heart, is preaching a path of self-sacrifice. And unavoidably, in terms of the relationships, he would go the same way and say, discover the heart, even if it hurts. Kahlil Gibran, in his fabulous, the prophet, he says the same thing. Love is full of laughter, and it also has got a lot of tears. And if you have known only the laughter of it, then you don't know the full dimension of love. Only when you get to encounter the tears of it, then you will be totally belonging to love. It doesn't say it exactly literally like that, but that's more or less the idea. I can bring it next time and read comparatively from that. That is why remember that love has something divine. Kahlil Gibran says it will grind you, it will smash you. He makes a comparison like with wheat and making bread, like with uh, cloth and being washed and dyed and so on. And he says exactly as the cloth is beaten and hammered and rubbed and squashed and whatever, exactly in the same way love is going to give you the total roller coaster. It's going to smash you and sometimes you'll laugh and sometimes you'll cry, but the purpose of it for the one who asks for the grace of Kali, for the one for whom every minute goes towards Nirvana, for the one who is going up the ascending path of spirituality, for the one who is asking the mercy of God and wants to be enlightened, the miracle of it is that each and every of this process is like you boil something to distillate it. Exactly as you boil compost, to distillate from it something refined and exquisite. In the same way, our life is sometimes full of pus and boils and pain and wounds, and you distillate it into eternal love. The human being is, after all, made of rotting flesh and full of feces and everything. It's not a big glory from a certain standpoint in this physical thing that we are. And it is emotional to try to think that this little piece of filth that we are can reach the infinite and nirvana. From this bag of rotting flesh, there can result a Buddha and a nirvana. Therefore, it's the same with the relationship. Sometimes the relationship is shit, and yet the light can come out of that as well. And Jesus is giving a kind of uncompromising direct path. Go full power into it, even if it makes you cry, take your cross on the shoulder and walk boldly because the end of the road is enlightenment and salvation. Even, even if you had a life of martyrdom, in the end you'll have the laurel of the saints on your head and you say, I have suffered and pulled hard all my life, but I have reached the mirth laurel of holiness. I will not speak more, it is over 12 o'clock, quite a lot. Jesus continues with other amazing things. We have reached the paragraph number 33 from the chapter 5 of Matthew. Questions and other things that you would like to comment? We have been going quite a deal today.
The tantric solution would be yes. The tantric solution does things in another way, as I said. Therefore, if you want to be a tantric, that means if you go into this kind of spirituality that we do, you will search for a karma yoga solution. You will search for the judo type of solution, for the sophisticated one, where yes, you can avoid and fight that war in another way. I am going to find perfect love, but I am going to find it my way, by doing this practice, by doing this, by doing this. I am not shirking the job. I am not lying low on the job. I am still trying to reach perfect love, but I have a special methodology for that. But if you don't have that as an alternative, like many of the peasants in Europe, they just had this, and that was all the spirituality that it was available, then this one was the beacon of light in the dark. It was the lighthouse. This was the only thing to which you could cling to reach enlightenment. Therefore, they did not have an alternative. You are lucky because now we commend the words of Jesus and at the same time, in some point, you have some alternatives. Dangerous or not dangerous, complicated or not complicated, demanding or not, but you can always say, no, this one I'm going to sort it out the tantric way or this way or that way. That's the advantage of Kali Yuga, of having access to all this knowledge today, which is so precious. But remember that in the context where Jesus spoke, he just gave one alternative to things. I guess we should stop tonight. If you have more questions, you will ask. in the other meetings. Tuesday there will be a normal meeting, that is if I am here. I still have to find out tomorrow when my visa run will be.